And I think you have to be clear around what kind of feedback you're looking for. And you might be looking for feedback that's just validation. Hey, we went through this. We did all this work. Can you help us validate that we got this right? Right. It might be before because you're not going to necessarily you have to have checkpoints along the way. So if you're doing like a process reengineering, you have this really complicated process with 10 different stakeholders. It's important to go back and validate that current state reality before you even come up with recommendations. Because if you're wrong on the current state reality and you're presenting recommendations, they're going to they're going to call you out. Welcome to Building Bigfoot, the podcast about growing yourself and your business. Uh, I'm really excited. I'm introducing uh, David Voigt here. He's uh, had a, a well, he's built a really incredible business with his business partner, and uh, in pretty you know impactful industry, especially in the last few years, which is uh, pharmacy and uh, working in the healthcare world. And then he's also had this remarkable health journey. So, my first question to you, so. I saw you post um, on Facebook because because we're we were hanging out and then obviously we live in totally different parts of of, uh, of North America and I saw you were on a skateboard a, a one wheel you know one of those one wheel electric skateboards and uh, so anybody doesn't know like uh, you're you you're probably in your early fifties I'm guessing yeah fifty one fifty one and you are you are taking on new sports new challenges like how did that happen. My oldest, so I've got four boys and my oldest is 22. And years ago, he asked for a one wheel uh, as he's heading off to college. And so he really got into that. I think he's put on four or 5,000 miles on his one wheel. And uh, then one of my other kids wanted one as well. And so I got him a one wheel. And uh, I had tried it years ago and maybe I wasn't in uh, as good of shape a few years ago. And uh, it was a little bit more difficult. And it was just sitting out in the garage and I was like, I want to learn how to ride this thing. And uh, part of the inspiration of that is I've taken each one of my boys on a father-son trip when they turn around 15 years old. And my youngest is ready for his trip next year. And what we're planning on doing is like a three-week overland uh, trip around the the U.S. and making it a disc golf-focused trip because he's really big into disc golf. So we're going to go to disc golf tournaments, play disc golf every day and hit national parks. And I thought, wow, that, that would be fun if the two of us could actually one wheel around uh, some of these national parks together and just kind of make that. So I'm on my journey to learn how to uh, ride the one wheel without killing myself. And uh, so that, that video was kind of my first, my first day. So that, that's my objective is to just be able to do that to spend more time with my kids. That's awesome. And you know, uh, so the this golf thing that's pretty cool too. I've been watching those shorts on YouTube, and some of those guys are amazing. Like I'm sure it's lucky a little bit, but I see some of these guys stand and they'll throw their disc golf, their disc, and it'll just literally curl around the forest, and then boom in the cage, and you're like, that is an impossible throw. Yeah, we're we're a little obsessed with that in the family. I actually put in an 18 hole disc golf course on our property. Uh, so we can go out and play every time. And then next year, the uh, world championship is about one hour from us in uh, Bedford, uh, Virginia. And so we're going to hit the world championship in 2024. So pretty excited. About oh, this crazy. Goal. Yeah. yeah wow. That is, that's, that's super cool. I, 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 yeah, that's, that's amazing. I had no idea. 
Um, yeah. And so you've, um, so you went and so you started uh, Acceleration Point. Uh, how, how many years ago did you start Acceleration Point? Like so we we started from a full time basis in uh, September of 2015, and we were doing. We started more as a side gig uh, to our big corporate jobs uh, about a year before that, and, and so. But the official start date was September 1st, 2015. And that business has since grown on to be, I would say, very successful. And uh, you're and you and you're building this with your your business partner Scott, which is uh, pretty cool because obviously myself and Steve we're we're same sort of situation. We're uh, co CEOs, business partners, uh, building this together. And you don't you don't meet a lot of people doing that. And so I think that's very cool. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's unique. You know, I, I used to uh, listen to a lot of Dave Ramsey and financial advice, and one of the things he said is the partnership is the only ship that sinks, and it was a warning, you know, to avoid partnerships. And um, and, and I, I certainly have a lot of uh, friends and people I've, I've seen that have had failed partnerships. And so I think it's it's quite unique to have a long-lasting uh, partnership where you get along very well and you're complementary to each other. And, and so between myself and Scott, it's it's just somewhat of a magical relationship where we uh, we're, we're generally in alignment. We have very few disagreements and we complement each other's uh, weaknesses and strengths. And so I think it's uh, it's worked out very well for me. But it's certainly could be a, a, a difficult path to follow, I think, for most people. Yeah, no, for sure. Because um, I don't know how it works with, uh, with you know, yourself and Scott, but for myself and Steve, obviously we're brothers. So that helps because we come from the same, uh, we have a lot of the uh, shared core values. But then sure. um, we, we're used to kind of duking it out. <laughs> We're used to having, you know, it's like there's there's holes and drywalls like around, you know, because we used to move, we moved quite a bit as kids growing up, and like uh, we deal with stuff, and the um, and so in in business, it's a lot like I would say, um, you know, in in the marriage where you've you're you know if if you want to put yourself first, you can do that, but it's probably not going to last very long. Um, but if you if you're both committed to, you know, having the best interest of the business at heart and you're, you're uh, committed to making decisions together and collaborating on those, I think the ideas and the um, benefits of it end up being pretty profound for you. What, like, what would be some of the benefits that, have, that you've seen uh, having worked with Scott? I think he and I have a lot in common. As an example, I, I think of my superpower as being uh, process engineering. You know, I can take a look at a ridiculously complex uh, process or problem and just instantly see um, how I could improve that process. And and Scott actually comes with that same gene. Um, he, he has ability to do that. We're we're not technical founders, uh, but we're both techie. And, and so we don't mind learning something uh, on the tech side and figuring out how to do that. And then I, I think our third thing that we have in common is we're, we're just avid learners. And so we don't, just because we haven't done something, it doesn't 
prevent us from going out and learning it. I, I can go spend three or four hours, three or four days researching something and, and know more than 95% of the people out there. And in our business, as long as you know, you're, you have done more research and you have more knowledge than the majority of your clients, you're in a pretty good position um, for becoming an expert in that, in that process or in that field. And so Scott and I share those, those three things. And then on the differences, you know, he, he's, he's one of the most brilliant organizational effectiveness training, um, people I've ever met. Um, um, just, he's one, you know, world-class in those things. Um, he's not really good at numbers. He's not really good at finance. Um, but I come with 15 years of finance background and operational background. And so, you know, on the things where we're different, those things seem to be very complementary. And uh, so it's nice having some things shared and then some differences. And I think that's, that's really worked out well. And, you know, you brought up marriage and it's interesting. I think it actually goes the other way. Some of the, some of the lessons I've had, and I think I probably need to get better at it is one of the reasons Scott and I work really well together is because we have these shared long-term goals. And, um, you know, we, this is where we want the company to be. This is how we want to grow. We're both incented on the same way, right? We're incented financially. We're incented by the growth of the company. Uh, we're incented by creating great places to work for people. Um, and I think if you can do that, same, use that same type of philosophy in your personal life, it's, it's a lot more enjoyable. So I'm sure whether it's a project that you're working on, like a home renovation, some of the, the uh, most stressful times that you could have in your personal life is doing a home renovation or home construction with your wife. But at the same time, it's probably also the most exciting because you both have this same shared long-term goal that's very articulated in what it is that we're trying to achieve. And so like having that, that project or having that long vision Personally, um, I, I think there's a lot of value to that. I don't know if I do that and practice that as much as we, we should, but I know when my wife and I are aligned around something in the future that we're both working towards, it feels like that's the best time for our relationship. Yeah, that is like, that is a very good point. Like if you don't have a shared vision or, um, you know, of where you're going, I think that is probably where most founders are going to find themselves in in the biggest amount of conflict which is they're they're pulling in two different directions and but if you have uh if you have a uh shared vision it's actually it's just like what we we're talking about earlier because uh we i like random timing we both bought uh rowing machines like at the same week and uh right. <laughs> which is bizarre um yes. and uh which is awesome now we can we should compete. <laughs> you need to change to the concept two rowing machine so that we could actually yes. join a team together. Well, maybe I will because yeah, we'll we'll see how that goes. But the um, the key is is that if you both have the same vision, all of a sudden you go from like a one man to a two man rower. You, you now have two people who are pulling in the same direction, and the speed at which you get there, the uh, the brain power, the collective energy, uh, even the ability just to kind of like pick each other up when one's down. Um, that is that is true like truly remarkable but then you gotta have clarity of vision like we did the vivid vision um program i forget what what the uh her name is but uh that that was really great for us 
Have you guys ever done the Vivid Vision? So I haven't gone through the official program. Um, however, I did create a draft of a Vivid Vision uh, just about three weeks ago. And that was really the first time I started at least articulating my perspective down, which I thought was important. And, um, and we have two parts of our business. Uh, we have a medical excellence consulting part of our business, and then we have our SaaS products. And so I actually created a vivid vision, uh, document for the SaaS part of our business. And, uh, we're reviewing that kind of collectively as a team right now and everybody's inputting into that. But yeah, it was a, it was a very, it was a great exercise to go through, um, to help try to drive alignment. And so we're at the really early stages of it. Um, and I probably didn't necessarily do it correctly. Um, but we, we are, we're starting to put that together and I'm, I'm finding it helpful already. Yeah, I, I find it so helpful. The, uh, it's funny because, you know, one of our, um, vivid vision statements was that we want to be integrated with 50 different tools, uh, by the end of next year. And uh, so now the Vivid Vision, like there's there's things in the Vivid Vision in which um, you do, like what is the team environment? What do you want it to look and feel like? What is the culture of the company? And then what are some of, like, what does the product look like? And um, what's neat about it is that the team sees that goal now because of the Vivid Vision. And so everybody's always talking about, like, are we on track? Like, where are we at? And uh, that that's brought a sort of a, a fun to, because every every day it seems like we'll bring a new challenge that, you know, I didn't see coming <laughs> and yeah. But then having that clarity, it's like, it, it keeps everybody. Um, it, it makes the challenge funner, more fun because you're, you've got something that you're like moving towards, which I guess is to your point, which is having the clarity of what is the vision that you're building. And that, um, that really does make things a lot more meaningful, whether it's like your marriage or your business. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, and we're, we're, there are some, what do we call maybe more traditional corporate processes that we haven't had in place. Uh, we've grown very quickly. We wanted to, we, we ran away from the corporate world. Both Scott and I worked at multi-billion dollar companies and big roles. And uh, we aggressively ran away from that, right? We didn't want to, uh, we would never wanted to have an HR department, right? We never wanted to have a finance department. We never, we were trying to create a really flat organization um, where everybody could come talk to the CEO. And as we've grown in the number of people that we have, we're, we're really finding, and because we, you know, we have almost 80 people, not everybody has an opportunity to get that shared vision through conversation. And so it's been becoming very important for us to have an articulated vision and then to break it down towards goals. Because I think when we were smaller, when we were 10, 15 people, we worked as like a hive, right? We were all just working together to solve uh, problems and everybody was involved in everything. And now that we're um, dividing and conquering and we have different product lines and different lines of business, it, it's becoming much more important to have that common vision document and then breaking it down into manageable goals. And so we're actually just starting on the OKR process for outcomes and key results um, and articulating those by teams because we, we really have grown to where we're at right now with having, without having articulated goals. Um, I always used to say every time somebody would interview me, you know, they were, they were always uh, maybe a little risk adverse about joining a small company. 
And they're like, well, where do you guys want to be in five years? My answer was always, I have no clue. Um, I just want to, I have no sales goals. I just want to, I just want to work with people I enjoy working with, um, that I want to hang out with. And I want to do an exceptional job for our clients. And if we do those two things, we'll probably see growth. If we don't see growth, that's actually okay. Um, because I wouldn't want to sacrifice working with a great group of people and working with incredible clients and delivering a lot of value. And so, um, Really, up until the last year, we haven't had goals um, as it's associated with it. We've had more philosophies around service and how we work together. Um, but because of the size, there's a lot of people on our team now that are looking for a little bit more formality. And they want to make sure what they're working on is actually driving towards something bigger. And I think so we're, we're just evolving to that point, maybe a little bit late. Um, but, you know, we're... You know, we're, we're seeing a need to have a little bit more formal kind of uh, traditional corporate processes. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah, because I think people want to feel like they're contributing to something. And so if they know that there's a goal, then they're like, OK, well, I feel like I've made a contribution towards that goal. And so um, that's a fulfilling part of, um, I think, being a human. You So when you're doing OKRs now, how are you setting up your OKRs? So we're, we're just getting started on it. So we literally don't have them set uh, yet. And um, I'm doing a lot of reading and learning on OKR implementation to try not to take a, a wrong first step on how we're implementing it. So I, I believe how we're going to be starting is really thinking about OKRs at the company level and at the team level, uh, trying to limit it to two or three OKRs uh, for each team. And, uh, we're starting with more, maybe more of a top down approach, um, with bottom up input. So we're going to be setting at the leadership team level, we'll be setting OKRs for each of the teams and uh, aligning on the corporate. And I think we'll stop at the team level and, and just work on getting it implemented. Um, I, I do have aspirations of getting down to the team member level, but let's, um, let's start at the at one stage and, and start building the business rhythms around that and making sure everybody's comfortable that, you know, as a leadership team, we're actually holding ourselves accountable to hitting OKRs before we ask the team members to uh, be held accountable to OKRs. So we're really thinking of this as a multi-phased approach. So we'll probably stay at the company level and the team level for this year. And then based on how that's going, we might expand that down to the team member level for 2024. Yeah, that that's great. So for anyone listening who doesn't know what an OKR is, basically it's an objective and a key result. And so the objective is the vision, like what are the direction that you're going? And then the key result is what needs to be done to get to that direction. So um, to that goal. The uh, And so key results tend to be really tangible. Objectives can be less tangible. So they can be more um, aspirational in some cases. Yeah, and I think an example of that would be uh, the objective is to uh, the objectives never have numbers in them. So, and the key results have to have numbers in them. And so, if you think of the objective is to grow our SaaS sales in in twenty twenty three uh, or in this quarter, because usually the OKRs are broken down by quarter, and so you have uh, you have short term goals. So in this quarter, we want to grow our SaaS sales. And then the, the key results might be um, you know, sell six more of this product by the end of the quarter uh, uh, 
on all renewals take a 15% price increase, you know, but it's, it's something that's very measurable and you can tell how you're progressing against that key result uh, throughout the quarter. And so if you, if your plan was to sell 10 new subscriptions or a thousand new subscriptions, you know, at the six week check-in, you know, if you've only sold 200 out of a goal of a thousand, then you don't have to wait till the end of the quarter to understand that you have a gap. And then what should we do to try to change the trajectory and close that gap? Um, so we're trying to get things that are more um, ensuring that they're numerically measurable and scorable. Because at the end of the OKR process, you also sit down and score how you did as a group and share that back to the company. And so you can say, okay, well, we got seven out of 10 on this one. We got three out of 10 on that one. And, and the purpose of it is to be a learning process so that um, maybe you set the goals too high. Uh, maybe you got 100 or 10 out of 10 on everything and you set the goals way too low. And, and so the, the objective is to go through and continue to learn as an organization around how do you set your objectives and key results at a, at a spot where there are stretch goals. And I think all industry best practices show that you're in the, at the end, if you're scored around a 70%, uh, you're doing pretty well. And that's probably a mix of a couple things that you knocked it out of the park and then some things that you failed at. Um, but in general, you want to be in around the 60 to 70% range. Yes. And, and the key thing is that, um, of, like their stretch goals. And if you have a team of uh, achievers, um, uh, w- they're going to be motivated to hit that stretch goal. So they're going to be stretching right. themselves to uh, to achieve the outcomes. But the key is, is that these are not like things that you use as a, um, as a, 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 like a review for an individual's performance. They are separate of that. And I think that's like part that people sometimes get wrong or misunderstand with OKRs. This is really about uh, communicating and articulating strategy and then everybody feels or understands how they can make an impact towards that strategy. And, um, and it, it, it's, it's a very powerful tool when used right. Um, we've, we've had like, uh, it, it, yeah, we've had good experiences with OKRs. We've had real challenges with OKRs because one of the mistakes I made um, early on is I allowed our um, or encouraged our team to write their own OKRs, but never gave them feedback as to whether or not those things were actually directionally accurate. And um, and so <clears throat> what I would do in the future is more like what you've done now, where you'd have start with a more top-down approach and actually allow people to understand the process of OKRs and how they work, and then give them, say, the opportunity for individual team members to now say, okay, two of these OKRs are set already, and now I have an op- like opportunity to write one OKR or one of my own that's going to be moving towards the same um, outcome, and and not to bite off more too much, because I've definitely gone to where I've I've had five OKRs personally, and um, you are working really 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 hard to try to get those five across the line, and it's um, I think two or three is probably really ideal. Uh, yeah, that's everything I've read. And I think the the challenges I've had so far in the implementation is just the calibration of what an OKR is, right? Um, initially, when I had a couple of my leadership team tell me what they think the department OKR should be, it was much more of a task-oriented 
approach versus a measurable outcome. Like we're going to, you know, it was five things as, as key results that were either going to be yes or no, right. That we're going to, um, you know, uh, finish the customer journey playbook. We're going to recruit two people. Um, and there's a balance to that, um, around if you get to a yes or no answer, that might be okay to have some of that, but it's hard to measure progress necessarily on that. And so we're, we're trying to uh, go through and make sure that they're meaningful and measurable and not just a part of what their daily routine is. Because it, to your point, it's, it's supposed to be a stretch goal and it's not supposed to be kind of the run the business activities. Like, you know, if you have an SLA for your, um, for your uh, customer support team that you want to answer, you know, uh, 90% of the calls within, you know, 10 seconds or something like that, or 90% of the emails within three hours. Um, you have to be careful around just putting your SLA numbers in there versus we want to improve our email response rate by 35%. Because then you can actually say, okay, well, we used to be at a baseline of 90 seconds and what we're trying to get to is an improvement to get down to 60 seconds or used to be at 24 hours. And now we want to get down to, um, three hours. So if you start to articulate things as improvement, uh, versus kind of that baseline, um, you know, I, I think that'll go better as well. Yeah. A hundred percent. And the, the other thing that I found really helpful with OKRs is reviewing them on a weekly basis. So, um, having, having the team members with, um, you know, even their, their team just as a week taking out uh, time, like uh, 30 minutes a week, just to everybody sort of say their, their OKR, where they at, how are they doing, where are they struggling, what do they need help with? And uh, I just find that is a really good like recalibrator and everybody is, <clears throat> everybody's more clear on, on their goals and it ends up being much more successful by the end of the quarter. Um, the, so, uh, so, so David, uh, so so you and I, um, we were uh, we've met basically through uh, business events, and uh, one of the events uh, was tons of fun. And for anybody listening to this, you might you might pick it up a little bit. But uh, David's got a bit of a baritone voice. I didn't realize just how much of a baritone voice. Uh, we were in uh, Tennessee, and we got this opportunity to go to a recording studio in Nashville, and uh, literally write and record and. Uh, uh, produce a song and we were part of a team that were very very talented musicians and producers and recorders i believe um the producer was an emmy award winning the uh writer was an emmy, yeah multiple and the writer had like written numerous um number one chart songs well uh david ended up being part of the singing um uh crew and uh <laughs> Your voice was amazing. I just remember how excited the uh, the recording studio got when you would start to sing because you had that like deep chocolatey voice, and uh, it was yeah, it was super cool. So we wrote the song together. I haven't received any contract offers though, so um, you know I, I, I was hoping maybe I could have a new career starting after that day, but nobody reached. <laughs> they were probably like, "You're too expensive." Yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was, it was such a fun, fun experience, but what, what I'd love to know is, okay, uh, what's your story and, and where did like your background, uh, as a, you know, a kid growing up all the way to today, did you always know that you were going to be an entrepreneur 
Uh, where did you start and how did you get to where you are now? So I think I was always destined to be an entrepreneur, but I took a, a road that led me to a corporate job for the majority of my career. And, you know, when I was very little, I was very entrepreneurial. I, I, we were in a new, newly developing neighborhood. I uh, started a business and did marketing, passed out flyers, went door to door for doing things like dog sitting and health sitting. I did watering the lawns. I did lawn mowing um, and had a whole price list of all the services that I would offer and um, really enjoyed that. And then I uh, also started flipping bicycles. And so I'd go to garage sales, buy bikes for two or four dollars. I'm pretty mechanical. And so I would uh, repair the bikes and then sell them uh, and, and do that. And then later on, kind of in the high school, college year, started a painting business. And so I did um, house interior and exterior house painting. And, you know, and that, that was kind of the end of it from an entrepreneurial standpoint. Um, I went to college and got a degree in physics uh, with a minor in math. And so it was very analytical in nature. I got out of school, worked in a tech support field for a little while, and then did not see that as a long-term career um, path for me. So I went back and got my MBA in finance. And the only reason I chose finance was because it had numbers in it. I had no aspirations of being a finance person, didn't really know what the finance role was. Uh, best interview question I ever had, I was interviewing the CFO of 3M or he was interviewing me and, and we're sitting in this huge office and it was a good conversation. He's like, do you actually know what a finance person does? Could you walk me through what you think that role is? And I stumbled my way through with probably a very poor answer. I ended up not getting the internship offer, but um, it was always that. And then I, I left and I went into uh, really corporate finance. And so I was finance at Frito-Lay uh, was really my first job out of undergrad. Then I went and did uh, finance at a private multi-billion dollar company in Minnesota called Carlson. They, they own like TGI Fridays, Radisson Hotels, a cruise line marketing services. And I really grew my finance career um, there. And then I got recruited over to Best Buy. I became the fi uh, vice president of finance for North America for Best Buy Retail and um, left there um, and uh, moved over to Advanced Auto Parts and became a VP of finance there. And then, but that whole time in my finance career, I really didn't want to be in finance. Uh, you know, it was one of those <laughs> things that you're, you're, you're good at and, and you're doing well and you're progressing. But in my heart, I'm not a finance person. I think everybody probably has a stereotypical image of a finance person. And in some, some cases, they can be quite defensive in nature, uh, meaning, you know, they're, they're not playing for the offense, they're playing on the defensive side, right? How do we control spending? How do we control risks? And, and I was on the completely opposite side. How do we grow the business? How do we take risks? And so I didn't feel like I was in a really great spot. You would, that makes you a great finance person, though. Well, that, that's the thing. That's why I kept doing well in my career because all the business partners, I was acting much more consultative in nature on how to help them grow their business. 
And so they all loved working with me, or at least they told me they did. And, yeah, and much, they all much more on, entrepreneurial, much more entrepreneurial. Yeah, and, and they all talked about, man, we'd love to have you on our team, right? But I was never really ready yet to shift over to a non-finance role because I had aspirations of getting to a certain level within that career. And so when I was at Advanced Auto Parts, my, um, my former CFO of Best Buy went over and became the CEO of Advanced Auto Parts, brought a bunch of Best Buy people with him. And, and so I went over there as the VP of Finance. And then about four weeks in, they came to me and was like, hey, would you like to be the VP of Operations instead? And I was like, well, I just met my team here, you know, four weeks ago. Um, but I had always wanted to move into operations. And so I moved into an operations role and I, I, um, mostly they brought me in there because we had a large labor budget. As you can imagine, we had 5,000 stores, 70,000 employees. And so our labor budget was, you know, $1.3 billion or so. And they wanted somebody to help. You know, the labor guy controls how much labor goes in the store, what store it gets it, when it should be scheduled. And they're like, no better person than a finance person to help control that, you know, the largest budget. And, and they said, plus there's some other stuff that comes with it. Well, you know, I went in there um, and uh, all the other stuff was really fun. You know, the, 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 the labor stuff was great, but everybody hates the labor guy, right? Every store hates the labor guy because they don't get enough labor. Um, all of the sales leadership, they hate the labor guy. So I, I, I moved into this place where I was hated in finance in a sense, right? Finance roles generally aren't like because you always snip everybody's budget. And then I moved into this role where labor was part of the role and everybody was angry at the labor people for not having enough budget. Um, so, so I did that role, but I got other parts along with that and people started giving me more departments. And so I, I, um, ended up getting communications. I got store systems. I got customer service. I got online sales. I got, um, tool and equipment sales. We, we brought in training and onboarding. We trained 25,000 people a year. And so I started getting this really broad, um, envelope of experience on things I really like to do. And, and all of those things weren't necessarily handed off in like really well-oiled machines. And so I got to go in and fix a lot of stuff. Like our training really didn't exist. We didn't even train people on the point of sale system. And in two years, we were able to take that from basically not existing to having a, a huge department that we won uh, Tele Awards. We won um, Chief Learning Officer Magazine Top 10 uh, training companies. Um, and so we were, we were, you know, we had the ability to really make a lot of change for a lot of people. And, and so I just, I really enjoyed that building phase of, of life and, uh, really played into my strengths. And so I was in the operations role for uh, quite a few years at advanced auto parts. That's actually a very cool story. Um, it's, it's quite a lot of, uh, you know, uh, weaves and, uh, and, and moves that you made. So how did you get from there to acceleration point? So, um, the, the story on that is a, um, one of the responsibilities I got was training and, and I was, I was hoping for training 
because our, our training wasn't very strong. And the leader of training was Scott, my business, my current business partner. And, and so I didn't really know him. I knew who he was because if you've ever met Scott, uh, and you meet him once and you remember him forever. I mean, he's a really memorable person. He's really fun, uh, energetic. And so I knew who he was. He was, he was famous in a sense. Right. And, and he was, I, I knew he was extremely smart, but I'd never really worked with him before. And he came into my office for the first meeting and, um, and he actually was about ready to quit, uh, cause he was really disgruntled cause the, up to that point, the company hadn't put any focus on training. And, but before my meeting, his old boss said, Hey, just so you know, Scott has a side gig going on. And I was like, Oh, what's that? And he's like, I don't know, but I just want you to know. And I was like, okay. So Scott comes into my office and is like, Hey Scott, nice to meet you. Um, we started chatting. I was like, "Hey, by the way, I heard that you have a side gig outside of the your day job." And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I kind of do." I was like, "Just so you know, I don't care at all. Um, go forth and conquer." Because all the senior leaders around here, they're all adjunct professors. They're on boards. They're making their money in other ways. Um, so why shouldn't you? Uh, so go ahead and do that. Just so you know, our job here is not a 40 hour week job. So just don't let it interfere, but I could care less if you do this outside gig. Um, my only request is if you get really busy, please call me and I'd love to help. And, he, and all of a sudden to Scott, that was like this freeing moment, um, because he's always had to hide it. And now he had a, somebody that he worked with that was really supportive of it. And so he grew that he was just doing evenings and weekends, consulting and occasional meetings during the day. And he grew that to the point that he was making more on that side gig than he was on the job leading a training organization for a 75,000 person company. And, and he and I started doing a couple of side gigs together. And, uh, you know, I was, I was making 10,000 here, 20,000 there. They weren't necessarily huge, but it was fun. Right. Learning about a new industry, learning about a new company. And so we started dreaming about doing that on our on our own and actually leaving our corporate world. And uh, we wanted to have a little bit of proof that we could actually do that. And we so we, we did that and it was like, hey, I, I think we can do this. I think we can get to a point where we can make, you know, at least make up the incomes that we were doing because we were both in pretty senior leadership positions. Right. So you had nice salaries, you had nice bonuses, you had um, stock options and, and all those things. And so giving that up and leaving that nest took, took some effort. And uh, so we started playing with it. We built our website. We started, uh, we spent hours together in the evening, just kind of walking around and thinking about business plans and, and markets. And, and really, we were starting going down that management consulting track and kind of this philosophy of how do we help people operationalize their strategies? Because I saw so much in my experience around all these strategies, these visions that were put down, and then nothing happened. And um, I was pretty good at making things happen. And Scott was good at making things happen. And so that was kind of the vision of the company. Let's just do Can that. I ask you a question right there? Yeah. So... Um, if like you're very good at operate operationalizing strategy what was it behind that 
like if you were to look at the um you know break it down or, or just kind of like open it up for a second uh sure. why do you think you were so good at making things happen in an uh, operational environment i i think for me, it's breaking it down into enough detail so you understand what has to happen. I, I used to, when I was at Best Buy, I had, um, um, I used to do these diagrams and some, sometimes they would get labeled and I had one that was a chicken, it was called chicken foot diagram because it looked like the foot of a chicken. And and the, the line going across is your current trend. You know, you see sales going at 1% growth year over year or something like that in a category. And then the, the category managers would say, well, it's a 25% growth is our budget for next year. And I was like, great. So how much of that is going to come from organic growth? Um, and how much of that is going to come through new initiatives? And what are they? Right? Because I can't believe you that you're going to have a 25% growth if you can't articulate what are you going to do different that's going to change your trajectory from a 1% trajectory to a 25% trajectory. Is it something in the market? Is it a new product that you're doing? Are you taking pricing increases? When are you doing all of those things? And so to me, it was just like this break in logic that people would say, I want to be here and I'm here. And they quite often couldn't explain, you know, it was a hope and prayer approach. And I'm not a hope and prayer kind of guy when it comes to business. I was like, no, I need to understand how you're going to go from 1% to 25%, break it down for me and break down the timing so that we can see whether or not we're going to get there. And that's just how my brain works. Otherwise it feels like this, just this logical disconnect. Do you, did you feel that most, most people had some sort of sense of how they were going to get there or, or would you define that there were just large strategy holes? Yeah. Large strategy holes, um, that they, they, they would, um, you know, some people are ideators, and they'll come up with the ideas or they're aspirational. And I worked with a lot of salespeople that tended to be more aspirational um, and, or inspirational. <laughs> they would say, I want to get to 25% growth to inspire the team to get there, but they weren't tactical in nature. And, and so my job in finance was often to help them get from their inspiration of 25% to, okay, let's break that down. So, you know, when I mentioned I was more consultative approach and on the finance role, that was a lot of my um, approach was, you know, you'd set these goals, but now let's break it down into some specific actions that that salesperson could, you know, manage with their team or investments that they might need to make. Um, and, and I think that that's just kind of how I was wired. And, and so it's just, it's more of a natural thing. I just can't let that gap exist without explaining it. Um, now there's certainly room for lack of things we don't know right now, right? You know, we could be sitting here a year out and saying, I want to get to 25% and we might only have plans that get us to 7%. That, that might be okay, but then you have to put processes in place to get the rest of the way there. And if you don't have those processes in place, then there's no chance you're going to get there. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, the I see why like you and Scott have been so successful like right away, because I think that's the piece that a lot of um, entrepreneurs miss, is that they, they got into business because they're either... Um, they found themselves, they were like a, uh, you know, 
a round circle trying to get into a square peg or they were like, it just didn't fit the, the right. corporate world or they um, were inventive and they come up with great ideas. But then when it actually came to figuring out what is the strategy and like, let's get tactical about this and make sure that there's, there's a, there's a method to <clears throat> achieving these outcomes. That's usually where the paper is blank. And, uh, and, and so would you work with people to figure out, like, would you would you do it more in like a, a question style, like to get it from them, or would you provide ideas that they could then go in uh, action? It really depended on the role that we were in. You know, if I understood the business quite well, um, then it was able I was able more to contribute ideas into it. But in our in our traditional management consulting practice, we we actually tried to go in. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's a strange philosophy. But if I was interviewing you on your business processes, Jonathan, and wanted to understand what you, you know, saw as the challenges, I actually walk into that conversation and try to empty my mind as if I know nothing. Um, and, and I try to paint a picture. Uh, we, we actually uh, learned this approach through a, a gentleman, uh, Robert Fritz, who has classes that he teaches on uh, structural thinking. And, and he's like, one of the challenges is we all use comparative thinking and we instantly stop listening when somebody's talking because we think we heard a problem that was similar to one that we've already solved. And so we stop listening and we're just waiting to inject a solution. And instead, if you empty your mind and um, I, I can give you a scenario. So we can, we can walk through. So I'm going to tell you a little story and then you're going to tell me, uh, you're going to draw this painting in your head. Um, so a little boy is playing on a hill. His mom calls them, calls him in for dinner and the boy goes into the house and eats dinner. Okay. So that's the story. Now I am commissioning you, Jonathan, to write or to paint that picture. Okay. So you're going to become a painter for a minute. And so tell me how old is the boy? You said he's a little boy. So I'm assuming somewhere between the ages of, uh, four and 10. Okay. Is it in the country or the city? Cause he's outside and you called him into dinner. I'm going to say he's probably in like a more rural, um, maybe like a neighborhood. Okay. And is the house big or small? Uh, for a picture, if I was going to paint it, I'd want to see the kitchen and I want to see the kid outside. I want to see a mom and a door. So it has to be like a pretty small home. Right. So imagine I actually commissioned you to do that painting. And what my, my um, picture was, was the, in the city, the boy on a construction lot next to the house He's on top of this mound of dirt because they had just dug the foundation. And the mom's in a second story apartment building, leaning over uh, the dirt parking lot, yelling at the boy who happens to be 15 and playing with some of his kids' uh, friends. And uh, she wants to, like, that picture that I had might be so radically different. And if you shut off your brain and drew your picture, you'd miss the mark completely, right? And so you could take an approach on 
how do I ask enough questions to fill in the painting? And if, and if you think about a business problem in that sense, that you want to keep asking questions until you fill in the painting. Now, if you say, well, if you said, well, how old's the boy? Well, it's a nine-year-old boy. He's got, you know, brown hair and blue eyes and, oh, okay. And uh, where, so you said a hill. Can you describe that hill for me? And, and then you do that and then you start filling in pieces of the painting. Now, you don't have to fill in every piece of the painting because it might not be important whether he was wearing blue pants or brown pants, as an example. But you have to fill in the pieces that are meaningful enough for you to get the entire story. And then along the way, you need to um, recap it to make sure that you have it right because you didn't hear everything correctly the first time. And so I would say, okay, Jonathan, just so I have it correct, you know, your, your boys are around eight or nine years old. You guys are in the country. It's on a hill. There's a small house. Um, oh, you didn't tell me. what is the house made of brick or stone? Could you tell me that again? And how many windows and doors are in the front? And, and maybe, or maybe I said, okay, so there's a hill and there's a one-bedroom house. And you're like, no, 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 no. I never said there was a one-bedroom house. My house is a three-bedroom house. And, and so when you recap it, um, we call that distranslation. So you're, you're recapping that back. You have the opportunity to check your story. And so when we approach the business problems, we use that same approach of going in with an open mind, an empty mind, not using comparative. And it takes a lot of training to do that because we all jump towards comparative thinking. Okay, I got two, two thoughts. I don't know if I'm falling in the trap of comparative thinking with these thoughts. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I was just listening to, I probably am. So I was just listening to a university talk is they put these university talks on youtube i love it it was a lecture on design and they were asking the um you know the people that were in the auditorium and there were professors in there as well like what is what makes a great designer and uh you know some people would raise their hand and say well it's, it's their ability to do with contrast or someone else would raise their hand and say well it's, it's it's the ability to uh you know the contour or whatever it was but it turns out like none of those answers were you know, yes, you need to be able to do all those things to be a designer, but the key to being a great designer is that you were able to understand the task that you were being commissioned or or that you had to go and do. And it was exactly this, like what you're describing now, because they were saying like, um, if somebody says to you uh, as a designer, um, most people are going to communicate like this. They're going to say, uh, create an epic scene to let's say to really show my brand in the best light what does that mean you know what does epic mean what does like what what do you what is your brand like like there's so many elements there that need to be understood and you're saying that it's actually not the job of the communicator it's the job of the designer to understand and yeah. and i was like i it, for me as i heard that and it blew my mind and then there's another thought i had which was related possibly to the situational um, uh, the circumstance of business itself, which is business tends to be a, uh, it's fairly objective, goal-oriented, and in a lot of cases, um, people feel a sense of pressure to perform. And it's a, it, there's not a high stress, but there's definitely stress involved, right? And yeah. I, I, um, there's interesting studies that look at the brain and they'll, they'll show you that when a person goes into a state of stress, or especially like fight or flight, which is like, you know, I, I need to action. 
uh, let's say they're worried about their, you know, business isn't going to hit their, their quarterly goal or whatever it is. The front of the brain uh, shuts down and the part of the brain that activates is um, that gets all the blood flow essentially is uh, right, right behind our cerebral cortex. It's um, I forget what it's called, but the uh, it deals with basically past solutions. It's kind of like, it's the most, it's, it's part of our, um, if I know that there was meat in the fridge and I am hungry, my brain knows where to look first to find that uh, food, right? And so it's like we have these pathways figured out. And so what will happen is that when a person goes through a stressful circumstance, it's not the most creative problem solving because the creative part of your brain is in the front and that's going to come up with new ideas. What it does is it goes to the old battle plan. And the old battle plan is often not going to get a person to where they need to go. And so, That's right. um, so they, they will end up, you know, knowing what to do. And you'll, you'll see this a lot of times in business where you have like the, um, uh, you know, the old boss will step in and be like, you guys are doing it all wrong. I'm going to take it all over and we're going to, you know, bring it back to the good old days. It's because, and, and actually Henry Ford, um, the original founder of Ford, he fell into that trap in his later years and uh, nearly killed Ford because he wouldn't let them come up with a new model. And yet um, I always found it most surprising. I think maybe I'm, I'm, we talked about this was the, like, do you know why it's the model T was called the model T? It was the one, the next one in the alphabet, wasn't it? Yeah. So they had already gone through ABCDEFG all the way yeah, to model T. Done. And then yeah. sales start declining, competitors are getting better, and and he forgot the most important thing is that keep making new models. And right. um and, and so it's uh I, I just I find that all very interesting because it's like I, I don't know if I'm if I'm falling into the trap of comparative thinking, but those all came to mind when you were telling that. Yeah, I don't think you I, I don't think you are. And 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 I think one of the things in that approach too that's really important is it gives you an opportunity. Like what we talk with clients all the time that'll just ramble for three hours or maybe not three hours, but an hour around their problems. And your ability to fill in that picture allows you to process it better, right? Because you, you, you literally are filling in a mental picture is kind of the training that you have on that. And you can uh, distill an hour's worth of conversation into it sounds like you have these three problems. You have this, this, and this. And they're like, you know, 80% of the time, they're like, wow, I've never thought about it that way. And, you know, because they, they have all these things going on, but the three big things are these three problems. Now that we've identified those three problems, now we can figure out what a future state should be. And one of, one of our philosophies is not... Um, how to fix your problems. I think a lot of people want to start with how do I fix my problem? And so as an example, uh, I drive a Ford Pinto. I don't really drive a Ford Pinto, but um, that's the car I have, let's say. And that's a problem because it will blow up uh, if it gets rear-ended. It's uh, very old. It's from 1974. And I really wanted a fancy sports car. And so how do I make my Ford Pinto fast? And that becomes kind of a 
traditional business approach around how do I take that Ford Pinto and make it look like a sports car. So you see people putting tail fins on it, putting nicer rims on it, putting an exhaust on it to make it sound faster, but it will never be a sports car um, because you started with the problem and you tried to modify the problem. Instead, what we do is we try to say, you need an absolutely clear understanding of reality today. Most people skip this step and that's where we spend the majority of time is how do you, how do you understand reality deeper than uh, you ever thought was possible? And, and if it's a process you're re-engineering, it might be talking to 20 people. It might be sitting with them, looking at them, doing that process for two days. It might be, it, but get in depth to understand the current problem. And then you want to understand what's their future state vision, right? What's the, forget about the problems for a second. How do you want it to work um, without constraining yourselves to how it is working or what systems that you have or what people that you have? What's your vision for how you want it to work? And now that we know what your current state problem is and we know what a future state vision is, now we can build a plan to get from A to B. Um, but that plan is not going to be in evolving your problem uh, and trying to fix necessarily the problem. The future state vision will fix all the problems, but it's not upgrading the Ford Pinto um, to make it look like a Corvette kit. Um, it might be changing it. And so I think like that's our, our kind of philosophy on management consulting. Now, I know both you and I are on the SaaS uh, side of the world, um, but we also do that management consulting. But that's kind of how we think about business problems, whether it's internally or for our clients, is this is what we have today. That's great. Um, this is the constraints that we have. These are the people issues that we have, the system issues that we have. Let's make sure we're all aligned that we see the problems in the same way. Okay, now let's talk about where we want to be a year from now and how we get there. Um, and, and so you have the context of the current state, but you don't constrain yourself by it. Yeah, no, that is, um, that is very profound and, and very interesting. So then when you go through that process, a person that, you know, is, is now going to have clarity. Okay. This is, you know, I have a better understanding of the problem that I'm facing. I have a better understanding of where I want to get the business to. And I have an understanding of what are the things that need to happen or maybe even what are the things that are missing that need to happen in order for us to get there. And so step one would probably be to fill in that blank. So come up with a strategy or, or task a team to uh, to essentially solve them the, the missing middle <laughs> so that... Well, and that, I, you know, just from a leadership perspective, um, there I, I take more of the Steve Jobs approach to product design in my leadership approach to like, so the consumers never came to Steve and said, you know, what would be great is if I had this device that I could play all my music on, it was a phone and it was all, you know, like Steve, Steve or somebody on his team had the vision around the consumers need an iPhone, right? It wasn't a bottoms up. And, and I, I think there's a piece in business that um, sometimes we're too collaborative too early and that there should be a, a small room of one or two people often um, that are um, thinking about what those actions should be and what that vision should be because uh, um, collaborating around the, the end vision sometimes can be detrimental. And so I think, you know, as, as a CEO or as a leader of a function, 
you really need to take more of an ownership in the creation, the initial creation mode, because that's your vision, and then allow others to critique um, so that you're getting that collaborative effort. But if you start with um, understanding you know, how, how you want to, uh, if you start with collaboration uh, around that, that actually can put you into a group think mode. And, and it's the same way with process engineering. The worst process designs, I, I hate Six Sigma in general, um, but, uh, but it might be the facilitation process that I've been in these meetings, but they, they sit in, you know, often will sit in rooms with all these stakeholders on this process and there's be 30 people in a room and they put a bunch of sticket notes on, on the walls, on the process and their pain points and all of that. And then at the end of the day, um, they prioritize and they st start stacking the sticky notes on top of each other and come up with the three or four things that they're going to do that think it's going to make the most impact. I think that's the worst way to look at any business process. I think it's like you take one or two really smart people that love process and can figure out complex issues and you have them deep dive everything, interview people, sit with people, do that. But you put all the knowledge of the end-to-end -end process into one person's head that's brilliant at it. And, and then they can come up with it because they, they are the only ones in that room of 15 or 20 that know the end-to-end -end process. Nobody else does. And, and if you don't know the end-to-end -end process, there's no way you can actually improve it because uh, you don't know where the real bottlenecks are. You don't know the dependencies. You can never figure that out in some complex mapping exercise because nobody understands everything from end-to-end. -end. So I, I'm just philosophically believe like you, those process oriented people and th that have like that genius are really hard to find. I wish I knew 10 of them. Um, but when you find them, they can, they can string all that together and then come up with what to do. And so I just think no matter where you are in business, whether it's, you know, uh, your business, my business, having somebody that on your team or a friend that you can bring in that can do that, um, is like a really powerful ad. Um, you know, especially if you're trying to re-engineer something within your, your organization. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and so where, where's the balance? So w when would you bring collaboration in? Like what would be a problem that you'd want to solve with, uh, in a collaborative way? I, I, I like to use the philosophy of critique versus create sometimes. Um, so I, People react. So if I, let's say I was that guy that was brought in and I spent three weeks understanding this process from end to end and I bring in a room of 10 people. Um, those 10 people didn't spend that three weeks of time investing and in understanding the process, right? So they, they aren't starting with the same level of investment, research and learning that I might have in that situation. And so the, um, the approach in that world is that we start to, once we have that vision of call it the 90% or the 80%, these are all the opportunities. Um, this is how we think it should be laid out. Then we bring people in to bring us that last 20% because it's a lot easier for a group of people to critique something that's already written down versus created. If you've ever tried to create a PowerPoint presentation with 10 people, you probably know the frustration of that. But if you gave them a, a 80% completed PowerPoint presentation with uh, and said, hey, can you guys please look at this, edit it, add to it, subtract to it, provide commentary on it, 
everybody can participate in that and, and you'll get a better document. Um, and, and so we, I, I really believe in that critique versus create. And we do the same thing with our clients. We, we take it all the way to the 80% without their input, um, really, except for the problem. They were in the current state discovery process, right? Because we're interviewing them. We're looking at their processes. But we take the recommendation all the way to the 80%. And then we start reviewing it with the stakeholders along the way um, that we've interviewed, that we've talked about. Hey, did we get this right? Did it make sense? And then we build that collaborative document really in that last 20% or that collaborative process. And then when you are getting that collaborative critical feedback, I've heard somebody, um, I think it was Seth Godin, he was saying that when he goes and he's writing a book and he sends it to somebody, he's very selective about who he shares his book with to get edited. And the reason for that is because depending on the state of his editing process, um, he might have been past the um, big idea stage, and now he's just really looking for somebody to edit it grammatically, or um, or maybe there's like a section that doesn't flow right. And he's and so he said, but what will often happen is if he gives it to somebody who doesn't understand this, the like doesn't have that um, uh, knowledge, or um, they will go straight to and they'll start ripping things apart, but they're in the wrong part of the process. Uh, how, how, how do you handle that? Yeah, I, I think it's setting expectations of the people that we're reviewing. And because you might want them to do that as part of the process, or you might just want them to spell check it, right? And, and I think you have to be clear on what kind of feedback you're looking for. And you might be looking for feedback that's just validation. Hey, we went through this. We did all this work. Can you help us validate that we got this right Right? It might be before, because you're not going to necessarily, you have to have checkpoints along the way. So if you're doing like a process re-engineering, you have this really complicated process with 10 different stakeholders, it's important to go back and validate that current state reality before you even come up with recommendations. Because if you're wrong on the current state reality and you're presenting recommendations, they're going to they're gonna call you out, right? Because they're like, hey, you got it wrong back at the beginning. And so how could your recommendations be worthwhile. And so you have a you have a deeper validation with everybody at the beginning that you have a current state reality. You start sharing some of the problems that you're seeing in that current state reality. And you're getting feedback along the way on that. Then you're coming up with a set of recommendations. Um, and then you're getting or you know you're getting feedback on the current state vision. You're getting feedback on a set of tactics to get from the current state to the future state. So I think you 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 don't wait for this big reveal at the end. Um, you're involving people throughout the process so that they feel like they their voices have been heard because they're you know we used to do a lot of change management and I had you know we, we feel like we're pretty good at change management and and uh, you have to bring people along in the journey um, you, to make them a part of the story make make them feel like their voices were heard um, and and that their problems were articulated correctly. And if you don't do that, uh, it, it's going to be a failure. My, my point on the collaboration is that's a collaborative process, but it's not collaborative problem solving in a lot of cases, right? It's, it's not collaborative visioning. Um, it's not collaborative. What are the problems with this process that touches 15 people? Um, but it's collaborative and reviewing and checkpointing along the way to make sure you're getting the story right and that it's actually working. 
Yeah. No, interesting. Um, so this conversation has been uh, very interesting. Uh, I have about I have a bunch more questions I'd love to ask you. Um, but maybe I'll uh, kind of end it on uh, this question, maybe one more. But if you were to meet yourself 20 years ago, um, or, uh, yeah, what would you, or even 30 years ago, like before you even started your entrepreneurial journey, um, and you know, you're, you're fresh in, in the world of, of, uh, your career, what would you tell yourself? And, um, yes, let's go there. You know, I, I took a long road trip this week, uh, with a friend of mine and young, young guy, 24. And he was asking me, you know, essentially a question about regrets and, you know, are there any things that you would change? And, and there are certainly things that I would, I I would change if I could avoid it, you know, things that I did, things that other people did, you know, people that died, people that, uh, lost connection with, and it's a hard question, right? Because I, I like where I'm at in life right now. And there are a lot of those decisions that impacted um, where you're at. And I'm not sure if I told you the story, but the reason I left Best Buy, um, Best Buy was an awesome company. If you ever have an opportunity, anybody listening to this, if you have an opportunity to work for Best Buy, uh, they're they're great. And uh, loved it there. Never wanted to leave. Um, And my dad was going, I was vice president of North America retail. You know, I was in a good position uh, a lot of stock options that could have turned into a nice retirement. And my dad was going through, uh, his 12th surgery for cancer over six years. And, uh, you and I have talked about our faith before, and I believe that, uh, there's a lot of, uh, this was definitely a God moment of interjecting in my life. My dad had just had his uh, 12th surgery and he wasn't going to make it and, uh, not doing well. In that same week, literally that same week, uh, Best Buy made an announcement that uh, we are um, going to have to lay people off in the spring. This was in December. We're going to have to lay people off in the spring. We want to treat you all fairly. No matter what position you're in, you at least get six months of severance plus one year of benefits. And um, if you're in a higher position like a VP, you got longer duration. If you opt into it, we'll increase that by 50%. And I was like, huh. Um, financially, it didn't make sense necessarily because I had to walk away from all my stock and stock options and things like that. But I instantly said, I need to take this. So I loved my job. I loved everybody I worked with. I had a great long-term career prospect there. Um, two of the people on my team are now the CEO of Best Buy and the CFO of Best Buy. So two of the people I had that I had hired on my team are now leading Best Buy. So I prop, I'm not saying I would have gotten to those positions, but I had you know good career aspirations. But I instantly knew um, I needed to do this and I needed to spend time with my dad. Um, and I got to spend the last 65, 70 days with my dad every single day um, uh, before he passed. And... That had a dramatic change to my career trajectory, right? And uh, from a financial standpoint and a career standpoint, um, it changed my life. We ended up moving out to Virginia from Minnesota. 
And I don't know, uh, I know for a fact I would not make a different decision, right? It was the best 60 days uh, investment uh, in time. Um, my fourth son was born a month later. And I, so at that time I had like a eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, a five-year-old and a newborn. Um, and I was like, I'm going to, you know, working through the stuff with my dad and then I'm going to take some time off. And like, what time in your life could you take off when you're that old, that old <laughs> with kids that age and take off an extended amount of time? So I took off like nine months and I was like, I was going to take off a year and just not work because I was like, I could spend this time with my kids for the first time instead of traveling all around. And, and so you know, those are those moments that you could look back and you could give advice saying, well, I should probably do more computer science programming. I should probably do this. I should probably work at this type of company. But sometimes life just needs to happen. And um, my life, right, I would have never started Acceleration Point had I not left Best Buy. Never. Um, I would have never moved out to Virginia. I wouldn't have met Scott. I wouldn't be at the church I'm at right now. Um, you know, there's so many things that wouldn't have happened if I had taken a different path. And so I, I, I struggle with, like, I give my kids advice, obviously, <laughs> you know, don't go into finance is usually one of my uh, pieces of advice. <laughs> Become an IT developer or something like, you know, go into a full stack development uh, class and, and stay out of the finance. Um, so I give advice on that, but I don't think I'd go, I don't know if I'd want to go back and change anything. Like there's horrible moments. Um, I'm grown up a lot as a person and I've become what I believe is a better person than I was 20 years ago. And, um, you know, I, what I, I guess the two things I would change when I asked, when I asked, uh, was asked that by my friend in the car this week. Um, I would have not been as driven for my career as I was. I would have been tried to be that driven for my family instead of for my career. Um, and I made some sacrifices of not being like a full-time consultant and working for Accenture Consulting or something like that. But I probably didn't make enough sacrifices in my career for the family. And that caused me to travel a lot and be gone a lot during their formative years. And so that's definitely a regret. And if I could go back to person 20 years ago, I would do that. Um, I also became a Christian in 2006. And so if I could go back 30 years, <laughs> I would have um, figured out how to evangelize myself and uh, present the gospel and, and do all of those things because I think uh, that's the one thing that, uh, certainly changed my life around. And, uh, if I could have done that earlier, um, that would have been a huge blessing. And so those are the two things I would give my advice. If I could have changed some things, um, be, be more focused on God, be more focused on my family and, uh, let the rest fall where it may. And, uh, and I, 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 I hope to be able to impart that to my boys at some point. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's what's caught sometimes, not what's taught. And 
and uh, they see behavior over a certain amount of times around traveling and focused on work and things like that during their during their formative years. And sometimes, no matter what you say, they see what you do or what you've done, and 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 they might prioritize that. But those are the things I guess I'd go back and give my younger self advice on. Well, David, um, this has been an amazing like treasure of a, a conversation, and. Well, thank you so much. I so appreciate this. The, uh, yeah, it's growth doesn't really ever stop. That's something, um, I've definitely come to learn and, uh, your family, they obviously watched the journey and so they've, they've watched the whole journey. And so, um, I've, I've got the opportunity to watch my folks go through their own personal journeys and, um, and I've always felt like I was so grateful I got to be there when they were still figuring stuff out because I got to watch it sort of from the beginning. <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and I, I I think that, um, yeah, there will be a lot of, I'm sure there'll be a lot of like blessing that will come to your, your family as a result because, uh, you know, we all get to learn how to navigate paths and wisdom is is obviously learning how to navigate our own, but um, wisdom is also, like you said, what's caught and not taught, but it's like being able to listen and see and hear, um, what other people are, uh, their journey. And then actually being able to say, okay, these are things that, um, I know I'm going to apply in my life and it's going to be different because of it. Uh, so yeah, I just want to say how much I appreciate you. This has been such a great, great conversation. Yeah. I've had a great time. Thank you for asking me to, to attend the podcast. Sir. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> you are a wealth of knowledge my friend this has been good well thank you Jonathan let's go